All right, let's jump in. We are almost, such good news, we're almost done with the book of Matthew. It's the longest book in the Bible, only when we preach it. It's actually not the longest, but when we preach it, it sure seems like it. Um, Trey last week did a great job. He mentioned something that I had never thought about. I was a little embarrassed to have never thought about this, but the teaching of Jesus about the goats and the sheep, you guys remember that? Tail up versus tail down. That's basically the bottom line, I guess. I have no idea Trey's obsession with Wikipedia, apparently, and goats. But the teaching of Jesus about the goats and the sheep is the final teaching that Jesus delivered to the people, to the masses, right? So there's, there's something important about that. And Jen summarized it well. And if I could pay extra to get Jen to summarize my sermons, I think Trey paid extra for that last week, but she came up and beautifully wrapped it up by saying Jesus' last appeal, his last big move, and his last bold play was for the least of these. So if this message is wearisome to you, not only was it the DNA thread that ran through everything Jesus taught, but his final sermon to the masses had to do with a bold play to not forget the least of these. You remember the story, right? To the degree that you've loved these and taken care of the prisoner and the hungry and the sick and the broken, you've done this for me. And the goat says, when? The sheep said, we had no idea that was you. Such a funny, such an interesting teaching that when we serve the poor, we're literally serving Jesus, whether we know it or not. The difference between a sheep and a goat boils down to whether or not we take seriously enough our mandate to look after the poor, the disadvantaged, the forgotten, the prisoner, the hungry, the thirsty, you fill in. Whether we take it seriously enough to actually find Jesus there. The point is, and Jen touched on this too last last Sunday, we have a guarantee that we will encounter Jesus himself when we mobilize on behalf of the least of these. Okay, so there's no way to take this out of the gospel, right? You say, well, you guys, that's all you ever talked about. Go ahead. Figure out how to take this out. There's not much left. I'm not talking about the church. I'm not talking about the church teachings, the church doctrines. I'm not talking about the early fathers, the ancient church, the middle centuries. The ref- I'm not talking about any of that. You go back to the red letters and the words of Jesus, and it's virtually impossible to cut out his message to mobilize to take care of the poor. But you know, hunger comes in many forms, right? So does poverty. In one place in the New Testament, the Beatitudes actually read this, blessed are the poor, and in another place they read, blessed are the poor in spirit. So which is it? It's both, isn't it? Poverty is poverty, and hunger is hunger, no matter where you find them, whether it be River Oaks, Houston, whether it be Lake Travis, or whether it be 20 miles east of 35. Hunger and want and need and desperation is the same, okay? So when we say that Jesus can be found when we engage the poor, the broken, and the hungry, we're not necessarily referring to socio economic status, okay? Of course, we are referring to that, but we're not only referring to that. You get the difference. The most natural reading of take care of the poor is to actually take care of the poor, right? So it begins there. But it's not limited to those who are homeless or those who are in, you know, dire straits economically. Let me be as frank as I can be. Wealthy societies like our own have a long track record of seeing only the poor in spirit. We don't see the poor because we've sterilized our life, right, our lives. We only travel in certain places, and the fact is we don't encounter this reality. We see the poor in spirit. We spiritualize it when we read the teachings of Jesus because we've a vested interest in maintaining and establishing our legitimacy that connects us to our wealth and our privilege. 
and I'm sorry if that offends you, that's the gospel. It's the most natural reading of the text when Jesus clearly says, it's the broken, it's the poor, it's the widow, it's the orphan, it's the outcast, it's the untouchable. It all begins there. Okay, so let's recall. We are actually walking somewhere with Jesus through these tumultuous events of the last week on earth, a week that we would eventually in the church come to call Holy Week. Of course, nobody had that sense at the time. It was Passover to them. His death and eventual resurrection are right around the corner, and we're marching towards Easter with a global church for company as we walk through the 40 days of Lent, a time to intentionally increase our desire for God. How do we do that? We do that by depriving ourselves of things that our body demands, right? These comfort things that our body craves. And we do it by taking on new habits that school us in formation to internalize a desperate anticipation of the, of the rising from the dead of our master, of our, of, our, of our Jesus. So it's a sense of building anticipation in the environment that we're trying to cultivate. That's what Lent is all about. So question for you. And questions at ANC are actually questions. They're not rhetorical questions like most preachers have. You're not supposed to answer most preachers' questions. How's it going for you in Lent? How's that going? What have you given up? What have you taken on? You might say, well, in order to remain humble and truly spiritual, I can't say. How's it going for you? How's it going for you? Nailed Jeff with that one. (laughs) Anyone? Time to reboot? Somebody said hard? Yeah. Facebook is hard to give up, isn't it? I'm joking. I have no idea whether you gave up Facebook. I wonder if Zuckerberg notices during Lent. Oh, God, I wish he did. Because it's a very common thing for Christians to give up because we all know we're hopelessly addicted, right, to the, to the little world. Everybody but John in the room, everybody's addicted to that, yeah. I wonder if Zuckerberg notices. It would be so cool if he did. How's it going? How's it going? Is anticipation building or are we just kind of bumping along through our spring waiting for 90-degree days? which will be here tomorrow. Congratulations. We've just had a week of Seattle, right? Rain every day, feet always wet. Your jackets all smell like a wet dog because it's been raining. Were you surprised at all on Saturday to wake up and see the sun? Like, oh, that's right. We live in Texas. Yeah, don't move to Seattle unless you can only live there during Austin. I'm just telling you that. So how's it going? Because here's what will happen. Time will fly by. And before you know it, we're going to stumble into an empty tomb and we're going to have to stand around and say, wow, that was really profound. But we've been given the gift of real time, which means if we get inside it properly, we can actually feel what's going on during this last week of Jesus' life. You guys remember high school English literature class, right? Anybody remember that? Some of you are like, yep, I remember that D. (laughs) We were taught in literature class, I don't remember if it was high school or in college, we were taught something to place special weight on final words. You know what I'm talking about? The final dialogues, the final discourse, the final conversation in Shakespeare. You remember the final, the epitaph? You know what I'm talking about. There's something special in things that are final. When you rally around the side of a loved one who's about to pass, we don't talk about the cowboys. We talk about things that matter. Sorry, you can infer what you want to there. But final things are always more important, right? Always pay attention. And this is what we're looking at right now. There's nothing that's going to happen in Holy Week during these last few days. Nothing's going to happen that doesn't matter profoundly. So that's just a warning to us. And since we're on the subject of high school English class, do you remember a literary device called foreshadowing? Anyone know what that is? Somebody define that, an English major in the room. Man, y'all are paralyzed today. What's that? It's a hint of what's to come. What does it do? 
not only does it tell us what's to come, but it helps us what? Right? It also helps us prepare for what's about to come, right? If you Google uh, foreshadowing in movies, for whatever reason, it brings up Monty Python, the Holy Grail. I don't understand. I, I got lost there. So I went back to uh, foreshadowing in literature and it had some better examples. But so keep that in mind as we look at what we're going to look at today, because I think we're going to see a glimpse of a foreshadowing of what's to come in chapter 26 of Matthew. Now, Matthew has 75 verses, which means we're going to have to click really quick. I'm not going to make you suffer through three hours of teaching. I'm going to summarize it for you very briefly, and then we're going to dig in in a particular part. Beginning in, chap- in verse 1, this chapter opens up talking about how the chief priests and the elders of the people were plotting to kill Jesus. Okay, so the world around the rabbis of Jesus' time is coming down around their necks because Jesus rides into town victorious, and the people actually think this is the guy. And so all the leaders of the people realize if they let this guy slide, something major can happen, right? Total loss of control of their kingdom is just about to happen if they let the crowd swell and coronate this guy, this Jesus from Nazareth, as the Messiah that they've been waiting for. It's hard to describe what Jerusalem would have been like at this time. It's just like South by Southwest, except it's entirely unlike South by Southwest. That's as best I can help you uh, figure it out. But here's the thing. These guys were looking at a clash of worlds, and they were more capable of considering murder than they were of letting him loose. Their entire religious world is being undone by the revolutionary teachings of this Jesus guy who rides in on a donkey, starts flipping tables, and starts touching people and healing people, and they know it's about to come to an end. At this point, the authorities are stuck because if they, if they take him in plain day, there might be a revolt. If they let him get away, he might slip the knot, and they may, may not be able to catch him after the Passover week. So things are mounting. Confrontation is building. That's verse 1 through 5. Verse 6 through 13 is a little story of Jesus in the town of Bethany. And apparently this is a town just outside. Think of Buda outside of Austin. Think of a suburb of Jerusalem. This is where Jesus was sneaking away to at night to chill with his buddies. We've got probably the last dinner party that Jesus attended other than with his disciples in the story here in verse 6 through 13. We'll come back to this later. But what I love about this is it said he was reclining at the table of one named Simon the leper. So we know this man is, doesn't show up anywhere else in Scripture. All we know, he's got a nickname called the leper, which leads us to believe this is probably somebody that Jesus healed from leprosy. And what a profound statement if this is your last dinner party to sit and eat with somebody who was dubiously welcomed into the community, right? He's sitting with the outcast even in his last dinner party. Moving on. Verse 14 through 16, we've got the story of the betrayal of Jesus by Judas Iscariot, Okay. We know this whole deal. Jesus, Judas provides the chief priests and elders the perfect solution to their conundrum because Judas is willing to identify and help them find him in the cover of night when the crowds wouldn't notice that Jesus had been taken away, right? This was the answer to what they were looking for. Judas rises to the occasion and fulfills, fulfills the prophecy. He agrees to privately lead the mob to where Jesus was hanging out late at night in the Garden of Gethsemane. You probably know the story. What blows my mind in this story is that when Jesus welcomes Judas and Judas seals it with a kiss, he identifies Jesus with a kiss. Jesus says, Judas, uh, Jesus calls Judas friend. It's so befuddling to know that even in that moment when everything is betrayed and the scallywag rises to the occasion for 30 pieces of silver, Jesus calls him friend. And what's so unbelievable about this guy is he apparently doesn't have enemies, does he? If Judas isn't his enemy, then who is? Unbelievable, all the way up to the very end. Verse 17 through 30, I know we're moving quick. We're going to be done here in a second. We're going to get back to the story in Bethany. 
But lest we confine betrayal to just Judas, by the time this is over, all 12 will have betrayed him. Okay, so 17 through 30, we've got the scene of the Last Supper. After this weird little table talk where Jesus goes from chilling with his boys to saying, guess what? By the time this is over, you guys are all going to leave me. You know, I don't know much about weird, awkward table talk. Ours is usually pretty warm and friendly. But when I think of weird table talk, I think of Downton Abbey. I think of the Dowager Countess, right, coming up with some... Cr- I think of Lady Edith insulting Lady Mary. You don't know what I'm talking about? Oh my gosh, like the last six years, we're in mourning because it's over. My children know nothing but World Cup, Tour de France, and Downton Abbey. I know we're the most un-American home. I don't know what we're going to do. You guys were like four when that came on. So when I think of weird table talk, I think of awkward moments, but there's this supercharged moment where Jesus sits with his disciples after telling them, go to such and such a house. They're going to let us do this in their you know, upper room kind of a deal. You know it. Everyone who's ever painted has painted a scene of the Last Supper. Jesus moves this weird pivot from breaking bread to serving them to saying, and by the way, you're all going to blow this off before you know it. Such a strange interaction. Such a strange little thing. There's purpose in everything Jesus is doing, and they're not catching it. They're not seeing it. Verse 31 through 35, things are getting cozy with the boys. John's saying, I'm the beloved. Peter's off to the other side. You get the story. You know what we're talking about. But Jesus says in verse 31, tonight you will all fall away because of me. Can you imagine how hard it would have been to swallow that mouthful of bread? How strange would that have been? This is where Jesus predicts Peter's denial. And of course, Peter shoves his foot in his mouth by saying, over my dead body, which if you're Jewish, you don't talk about dead things, much less at the table. That probably wasn't a very funny thing, although he didn't actually say that. I'm just thinking he said that. But Peter stands up and says, no way. No way. They got to come through me to get to you. Jesus says, if they don't come through you, and if you don't do this, if you don't follow me in this way, then you've got no part with me. Final words for the leader of the crowd. Verse 36, after the supper, Jesus withdraws to his favorite place to pray at night, and all he asks is that his brothers pray with him, and they take a nap. You know the story. These guys are so human. I get it. It's been a long day. They're trying to figure it all out. I I would have done the same thing three times. They fall asleep while he's praying. You know the story. The very next scene is Jesus literally waking them up saying, hey, the moment has come. They're about to arrest me. And they're probably going, what? What are you talking about? Peter pulls a sword and cuts somebody's ear off, right? He defends his beloved teacher like any of us would do. Jesus rebukes him again. Verse 57 through 75, then Jesus is hauled before a sinister and very dark night gathering of the Sanhedrin. And all you need to know about that is this. This was all the leaders of the people in town at the time. They gather in a makeshift night council to figure out what are we going to do? We got to do this before the sun comes up because this guy's got to go. So they try him and they look for ways and they can't pin anything on him. They're about to send him to the Roman, you know, Pontius Pilate to figure out if he can figure it out. But it's this night assembly and in the outer courts of this storyline is Peter fulfilling the prophecy that three times he will deny Jesus before the rooster crows. There's a lot here. But in summary, what it feels like to me is that this is betrayal. This chapter is about betrayal. One layer after another, walking away from the master in the moment that was most critical to support and stay in the game. The leaders, Judas, Peter, and the rest, all of them, all of us, will find a way to misunderstand the reality of the moment and pull away from the impossible invitation to join Jesus in death before resurrection. 
You see, that invitation is not funny. It's not to be laughed at. This is not our fast track to notoriety. This is not the next big hit. This is not our way to be known. If we're going to follow Jesus, we follow Jesus down. This is the key to Holy Week. This is the key to Lent. This is the key to Advent. This is a downward spiral because resurrection never happens until death, is the pre, death, death precedes it. How do we explain the obtuse denseness of his followers who still, after all this time, cannot get it through their thick skulls what's going on? He had told them it had been prophesied. They had been working on this. This should have come second nature to them, and yet they have absolutely no idea what's going to happen, and Peter thinks he's going to stop the whole mob with cutting off an ear. We can't say that the truth was concealed because Jesus' apocalyptic speech was unending and nonstop. He, con- he continuously reminded them. He warned them what was going to happen. And this chapter is not full of spiritual heightened sort of hyperbole and things that are hard to get. This chapter is full of roosters and kisses and Galilean accents and perfume and swordplay and torches and bread and wine and tears and naps and alabaster bottles and tables and couches and houses and fires and gardens and silver. And these are the things we understand. These are concrete earthly things. And Jesus is screaming through these things. And yet it's not reaching the audience. This is all earthy stuff. I could have forgiven the disciples had this all been doctrine. But he's talking through the things of our world and they're not understanding. Except for one nameless female, one nameless woman in all of this chapter. Back in the story of Jesus anointed at Bethany, there's a woman who remains nameless who gets it right. Let's go back and read her story. Verse 6. Such a sweet little glimpse. I was thinking of it this morning. This is all we have to access our Lord is is, is stories. Do you realize that? We've written countless, countless pages of thought and philosophy and ethics and morals and all of these different things and structures and we've institutionalized things. We've made an entire world out of the world of Jesus, but all we really have are stories that encapsulate who he was, how he responded to the world. And of those stories... This is one of my favorites. It's so simple, it's so dear. Verse six, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. This is Jesus interpreting the obvious. They should have known what this was for, but he's going to read it to them in plain Aramaic or English. When she poured the perfume on my body, verse 12, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I'm always impressed by the people around Jesus who actually get it. There's so few. And often they're not the ones who you would assume would get it. 
but the outsiders and the outcasts. But this woman actually saw what Jesus was about to suffer physically. His death had been talked about openly in the spaces of his disciples' gatherings, but oddly, the main leaders were standing right on the edge of the ending and could not see it. All they could manage was naps and cutting off ears and slinking away into the darkness. But this woman, Luke says, a sinner, according to other accounts, a sinner, is the one who actually gets what Jesus is about to endure. Since she empathizes and she spills herself, she empties herself, recognizing the incredible moment, she actually foreshadows what's about to happen. Back to our literary device. Jesus is about to spill everything of worth on us, the human race. And in a beautiful little warning and a beautiful little foreshadow and a beautiful little, hey, this is coming, she does the same thing. See, there's movement in the gospel. It's not just a belief. It moves in a direction towards the poor, towards the sinner, towards the lost, towards the unclean, the outcast, and the outsider. The gospel actually moves in a direction. She wasn't theologically correct. She wasn't even the right gender to be at the party. She was on the outside. But she choreographed the gospel move for those of us who were paying attention perfectly. She got it perfectly. This was the problem with Judas and Peter in chapter 26. At this point, all they're doing is self-preserving. All of their moves are designed to protect and to defend and to self-preserve instead of mirroring the self-denial and the self-emptying of Jesus. This wasn't a new move. They'd been watching Jesus do this forever. He consistently disappointed them when the moment was right to rise to the occasion and let the crowd coronate him. He self-emptied. They knew this, and yet they, they, this caught him off guard. Here's what I know. The gospel always moves. It always has a direction in which it travels. When the gospel doesn't move, it's nothing more than tribalism. If the gospel is stuck here and it's about coalescing around people who agree, who think the way we do, who worship the way we do, who believe and teach and gather and buy the same cards and vote the same way, that is nothing more than tribalism and it is not yet the gospel. It might be fertile ground for the gospel to be planted, but if it doesn't move in the direction that requires us to self-empty, it's not the gospel, it's just head knowledge. It, it actually is just the opiate of the masses when it's stuck in that tribal place. You know what I'm talking about. It's rule-keeping. It's law-enforcing societies made of people who are right with others left outside and clear lines delineated with those of us who are in. When you encounter this, run for your life. Guard your wallet. Cover your kids' ears. It's not the gospel. It won't transform. It just brands you with a tribe. Here's what scares me. As I've been trekking with Jesus through the gospel of Matthew, it feels like the good news is, it feels to me like the good news is more movement than belief system. And I guess I've spent my whole life trying to decode what are the teachings of Jesus? What do we have to believe? What do we have to do? I've spent my life in this. I'm a pastor's kid. I spent all my time in school focusing on this. And it's not belief systems. And it's not the ability to defend it. I wish I could have half those classes back and actually just learn how to do the work of Jesus in the world because it's movement It's story, it's moving on the behalf of a particular group of people where we've been promised to encounter Jesus. I've organized my life around this thing. But there are certain people 
who see him. They intuit what's coming next. They just know what's going to happen next. And this woman moves with the flow of Jesus, self-denial, self-sacrifice, enduring the judgment and pompous chatter under the breath of the insiders. The disciples are talking under their breath. How can you, can you believe it? If Jesus only knew she was a sinner, what a waste. Don't you hate it when you come up with something really spiritual, some big Jesus juke bomb in the middle of a dinner party? We should have given that to the poor. Jesus says, you just totally didn't see what happened. Man, I hate it when that happens. Don't you hate it when that happens? She endured the scandal, the comments, the chatter. She endured the fact that it was going to be criticized. And anybody with a brain would know what a waste of money for a single moment. Are you kidding? But she intuits, she knows, she understands that bodily torture and sacrifice and pain are coming. And that tiny little comfort of an anointing on your head would make a difference. She pushes into the wrong crowd, being the wrong gender, doing the wrong thing with her life savings, and is rewarded by Jesus with global notoriety. Go ahead, count the times in Scripture where Jesus says, wherever the gospel is preached, they will talk about this story. I think there's two, and this is one of them. Anyone can shout Hosanna when the week is fresh and the, the IPO is rising and everybody thinks this is the next hope. Anybody can say Hosanna in that situation. Anyone can rejoice with Jesus. Seems to represent all we've waited for. He's our answer. He's going to fix it. He's going to get the Romans out of here. It's going to be back to the kingdom of David. Anybody can answer Hosanna in that space. Anyone can cheer their teacher on when, when everyone seems to gather on every word that he says. When he summarizes a complicated law into a beautiful, simple little summary, anyone can be excited about that. Anyone can track while the crowds are swelling and the stock price is rising. But what about when we realize that the only way to follow this guy is to totally and completely self-empty ourselves? That's when it gets tough. You see, following Jesus impacts our politics. It impacts our economics it's going to have a big thing to do with our belief structures and the way we live and with whom we hang out and who we welcome at our table. It's going to have a lot to do with who we protect and who we shelter and how we shun. Jesus is going to impact all of those things. There's nothing off limits if we're going to follow this guy. It's going to involve our wallet, our time, our energy, our identity, our everything. It's all in the play. In a very basic way, I'm not sure it really matters if you believe in the teachings of Jesus. I'm not sure it really matters if you've got all your belief structures sorted out. It's obvious to me the 12 didn't. They're all over the place. What matters is simply this. Can you follow him? Can you do what he does? Can you track with him? Can you foreshadow the ultimate sacrifice? Can you lay down your life for your neighbor, for your wife, for your child, for your city? Can you mirror his movement? Belief will come along in due time. Can you follow this guy? Brandon says it this way. The gospel is about posture. It's not just what we think and say and believe. It's about posture. So what's the right posture to have during these incredibly cosmic, important events leading up to Easter? What's the right posture? How do we prepare ourselves for this journey, this downward spiral to the loss of all we have? 
There's no life until there's death. It's the kingdom economics. Jesus said a seed must die, must fall, must die. And then it gives birth to new life. So there is life abundant on the other side, but not until we've crossed through the turbulent waters of death and total loss. This is the story of Lent. This is the story of Easter. I wish I could rosy it up and polish it up and shine it up. We are moving in the direction of victory. Yes, we are. But oftentimes we want to pass right by the exit that says, get off here if you're going to actually make a difference. And we plow along our route and we're going places. And the next thing you know, we don't even know anyone who doesn't think exactly like we think because we've left the world behind. And scripture says, turn around and be a difference. Reach the masses. And we have absolutely no idea. There are no masses. We have no people except church people, people who believe the same. This nameless woman leads us all. She's the one person in chapter 26 who actually understands what's going to happen next. She shows us how. She doesn't even have a name. Hers is a moment of extravagant beauty in the face of death, extravagant worship. She wrote the book on worship, guys. This is the deal. She anointed Jesus' body right before it was going to be crucified and buried. She sees around the corner and she's universally admired for her bold act of worship. What do we make of that? What do we do with that? Can we, can we live that way? Can we follow Jesus that way? Have we properly counted the cost? It's not an easy road. We're right upon it. Why don't you stand with me? Van, why don't you join me?